0: Hello, and welcome to Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America. This fall, we released a digital magazine about the topic of resilience. In it, we feature the wisdom and unique perspectives of changemakers, thought leaders, and creatives on how we, as a nation, can bolster the resilience of our society. Please visit the magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to learn more. Judith Roden began her career as a psychologist, thinking about stress and coping mechanisms. She wanted to know why some people seem to do better with comparable stressors. This area of interest continued throughout her career when she later became the first woman president of the University of Pennsylvania and then the first woman president of the Rockefeller Foundation. In 2014, while at Rockefeller, she published a book called The Resilience Dividend, Being Strong in a World Where Things Go Wrong. The book defines five principles that all resilient entities have. And so if you find yourself, like I did, wondering how you can develop some of these, don't fret. It's possible, and Judith tells us how. Let's get to my conversation with Judith Rodin. So I have been talking to lots of different people about resilience, and I've been talking to them about personal resilience and organizational resilience, and I've pushed them to define it and to think of examples of where they've seen resilience. But you're in a whole different category. You actually did write the book on resilience, uh, the book called The Resilience Dividend, Being Strong in a World Where Things Go Wrong. Uh, a book that was published in 2014 uh, by the Rockefeller Foundation where you were, you were president. So you've got plenty of things to tell us, but I want to start by just asking you, how did you start thinking about resilience? What, what got you into this and why did you write the book?
1: The journey of thinking about it really came At the beginning of my academic career, I'm a psychologist, and early in my work at Yale, we were interested in stress and coping. We didn't use the term resilience then, but we were quite interested in the question of why some people or entities seem to do better than others with comparable stressors. And so that was kind of a meta-narrative all the way through my early academic career. When I got to Penn as president, we, among the many other things that my colleagues and I are proud of, I think we're quite proud of the fact that we, with our neighbors, intervened and transformed a very distressed neighborhood in West Philadelphia. And there I really saw on the ground the importance of building resilient capacity, whether it was physical infrastructure or economic resilience or social resilience, so that no matter what stressors hit, people and their institutions would have the capacity to rebound more effectively. And it's there that we really began to think about both shocks, the kinds of shocks that come from climate-related storms or floods, but also cyber shocks, economic shocks, and develop a broader narrative around shocks, but also came to see that equally challenging were the slower-burning stressors that... Hmm took time, um, poor transportation systems, inequality, all of those deteriorated housing stock that you don't focus on as shocks, but cumulatively really do serve to continue to aggregate as stressors. And then, of course, the big one was going to Rockefeller when we were called upon only a few months after I became president to uh, intervene in New Orleans after Katrina Ah. and help them figure out their recovery. And so the lessons that we learned and the interventions that we implemented really formed the basis both for our work at Rockefeller um, and much of the thinking in the book.
0: So that is fascinating. I, I never knew that, although I knew you were a psychologist uh, as a professor, as a scholar, but you really have seen it and seen the the through line from personal resilience to community resilience to a city's resilience. Uh, and And you see commonalities in all three, because I think many people would say that what makes a human being... Resilient in face of tragedy or you know shocks, as you say, would be very different than what makes a city resilient?
1: Um, I, I think that's because many people think of resilience at the individual level as a kind of born capacity. And we were very clear in being able to demonstrate that it's a skill that can be learned. And therefore, We think that that's the case, whether you're a person or a city or a corporation or a national government, that there are specific characteristics that define resilience. And if you will, I could talk about the five that we think are most critical because all resilient entities have these in
0: common. No, I, I want you to absolutely march us through it. But let me start just by asking you to define resilience itself, because I discover when I ask people, there are people who think of it more as endurance, <laughs> just kind of right. powering through. and then there are people who think of it as bouncing back. and that, so if you'll start by by just defining it, and then I would love to talk through the the common dimensions that you've identified.
1: I define resilience and in the work we did at the Rockefeller Foundation and in the book, this is the definition that we used, and we found it quite valuable. So three parts. The first is preparing. Hmm that is becoming able to really understand and assess one's vulnerabilities right, and prepare. And the goal here in preparation is to manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. That's sort <laughs> of the Cliff Notes mantra. Right. Not everything <laughs> is avoidable. So you want to prepare enough to be able to manage that which you can't avoid, but also to avoid that which you can through preparation. So that's sort of the beginning. The second is then the capacity to bounce back more quickly and effectively if something does
0: hit. Right. And
1: the third is the capacity to grow and transform after a shock. And the third is quite different from the way a lot of people do or entities respond to shock, because often we hear the rhetoric, oh, I just want everything to get back to normal. Right. But normal may have all of the vulnerabilities that made this hit harder than it might have been in the first place, whether that's a structural vulnerability or a personal vulnerability. And so the widely used claim that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste is in fact true. You want to be able to grow and transform if a crisis does hit. And, and we have many, many examples of how and where that occurs. So these are the three elements in that definition.
0: So what fascinates me is that you start your definition before the crisis. I really think most of us think about resilience as something that you draw on when a shock or crisis uh, or you know bad thing in your life hits, but you actually say, no, 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 no. Resilience starts with foresight, with preparation, with a cast of mind. Uh, the assumption that things will happen, uh, as you say, some you can avoid, some you can't. Uh, but that that is really interesting that, that it, it does not start in response to something, it starts beforehand.
1: Definitely. And preparation is really incredibly important. So there's a kind of, there was, I think this debate has has ended, but early in the effort to intervene around climate change, there was a debate between those who believed in mitigation strategies and those who believed in adaptation strategies. Yes, (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. And what resilience does is actually integrate those two. Hmm. So the awareness phase, the preparation phase really are the mitigation strategies. But because many elements of climate change or many elements of stressors have already occurred, you need to also build the capacity to adapt, not to give in, but the capacity to bounce back more effectively and deal with those things that either have already happened or are going to happen that you can't mitigate.
0: So again, it, it, I think it's counterintuitive, but very important. But so you've mentioned awareness as awareness that that early phase of preparing. You have to be aware of what could happen, what you're going to do. That's the the first attribute, or you don't say attribute. You actually talk about these as tools. These are tools and practices we can learn. So awareness is the first. Exactly. March, so March, March through them.
1: These are five characteristics or five principles that all resilient entities have, and therefore, in order to build resilience, we have to develop. Hmm. So the first, as you said, is awareness. They're aware of their vulnerabilities and their assets. They have both the willingness, if you will, but also the capacity to assess and take in new information and adjust to that information in real time, using monitoring and feedback loops. And that's really important. So it's not a static process. It's a dynamic process that requires continuing awareness of um, what's going on and, and intentionally building and using feedback loops in order to be as responsive
0: to real-time information. And openness to things you might not want to hear. I mean, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, but I like sticking my head in the sand. <laughs> well, this
1: is exactly right. And, you know, there are many instances, and, uh, and we've worked with many of them, where if you talk to corporations, they often have CEOs who don't want to hear bad news. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, groupthink and, and monitoring around that issue. And that's a terrible risk factor. Um, for a corporation as it is for an individual or a city or, or any other kind of entity. So that is a kind of non-obvious number one. Right. Number two is that resilient entities are diverse and they're often redundant in the types of backups and alternatives they can access. Hmm. So that if one part of the system is challenged, it can rely on another. And often we see failure because that doesn't happen. There isn't a backup. There isn't a diversity. And here we mean diversity of responses, but we also mean diversity of approaches, of inputs, of ideas, of people. Resilient organizations are those that are more diverse and resilient. Uh, Companies have processes that have redundancies in them. This was a challenge as we introduced this notion because there was a very uh, significant move uh, at the end of the last century for lean manufacturing, not having redundancy, lean value chains. And we saw tremendous weakness in the global economy because there wasn't enough redundancy or diversity when shocks hit.
0: Which is, again, a failure of preparedness, because it means you are not thinking ahead to the things that could happen. I'm laughing as I listen to you, because my husband is the one who always imagines, you know, if we're going to the airport, there could be an accident, there could be a backup, and I one who says it takes forty minutes. So so th- <laughs> these are our habits of of mind. Um, but I, I I think the diversity point is so critical. And I really have seen it myself as the head of New America, that where we have a really diverse team around the table, in every different kind of diversity you could imagine, it is the blind man and the elephant. People see the problem differently, and thus they think about different contingencies or different responses. So this this idea of both diversity and redundancy is, I think, essential. And you have a chapter that says that shows you what you have when you don't have that. Where you say when crisis becomes disaster, which I assume means, in some cases, you make things much worse uh, by by not having this kind of diversity and redundancy.
1: Right. The the premise is that not every disruption has to become a disaster that you may not be able to prevent the disruption, but you can prevent the disruption from having disastrous consequences. And that is a very important distinction. Hmm. So that's partly what these resilience principles are trying to um, say and are trying to protect. In terms of outcomes. And your your example about New America leads perfectly into the third, because the third principle or characteristic is that resilient systems are integrated in the way they share information. Uh-huh. They ensure with intent um, coordinated action across all components. So, you know, the left hand always knows what the right hand is doing, and they're working together towards the same goals. And when that doesn't happen, and particularly in times of stress and crisis, then events can become catastrophic. I think a great example um, that I used in the book was the Boston Marathon, because Boston had been practicing as a city for any kind of crisis. They didn't think it would come in the marathon necessarily, but they thought there might be a terrorism crisis, a horrific snowfall that might cause a crisis and the like. And they developed a set of tabletop exercises and all of the components of the response system practiced together. And then they... Integrated. So everybody knew what they were supposed to do if and when something hit. And then they practiced during events, which I don't know that their citizens knew. And so if one of their sports teams won the national championship and there was a parade, they practiced during that parade. Ah. And so they really worked to hone that element, the integration and information sharing. And so it's not an accident, I think, that no one who was red tagged and reached a hospital that day died. Because they had those responses down so quickly and they knew where where to go and who was supposed to do what. And the governor knew that he was in charge of communication. And so he didn't allow misinformation and digital wildfires to occur, which often disrupt populations. So it's a great example of integration and a positive outcome.
0: Huh. It also, of course, if, if you have to practice like that for emergencies, it, I am certain that it improved their regular performance, right? That kind of integration fights the silos that we all have to contend with all the time that are simply real barriers uh, to efficiency, to innovation, to simply healthy organizations.
1: And as you know very well, having worked in government, <laughs> or are those silos yes. more ingrained than in government, whether it's at the local level or at the national level and so often it's really preparation that has integrated across those governmental silos that is most important in in making a
0: resilient response to a challenge exactly so we have awareness diversity integration what's number 4 the fourth is that they're self-regulating
1: so wow. it means that if one part of the system fails the entity can delink its components to keep the problem from spreading. So I like to describe this as the difference between safe failure and failing catastrophically. (laughs) For example, I think you know that I co-chaired for Governor Cuomo New York State's recovery from Sandy. And its preparations going forward. And as we looked at the Con Ed failure, there really was no need for all of lower Manhattan to go down. If Con Ed had had a smart switch, which were readily available and now, of course, are, are in place in the system, it would have detected where the failure was, which station. It would have shut that one down and de the rest of the system from it. So there was failure,
0: but it could have been the catastrophic failure could have been avoided. That's fascinating because there's you're you're highlighting a difference between integrated and connected. Right, you can be too connected. You're you're saying you know you being modular and being able to disconnect pieces without taking the whole system down is critical. Uh, so that being integrated means the right people being connected to the right other people. It doesn't mean everybody being connected in one vast system. In fact, that's
1: that's exactly the right characterization. So you want to integrate the planning, the processes, the decision makers coordinate the actions, but you don't want such tight network systems that they can't be decoupled. Right. So the modularity is critical and the electric grid example should, it's a great example, but you should also think of it as a metaphor for your own personal life, or there are ways to fail. We're not saying that this prevents failure. We're saying that there are ways to fail safely rather than catastrophically. And hmm, I so love that. if something bad happens to you as an individual and you suddenly generalize it to every other part of your life, you're beginning to fail catastrophically. If you can modularize it to use your term or compartmentalize it to that which was the episode, you build in the capacity to fail safely and rebound from it more quickly and more effectively.
0: I'm going to take this directly home to my college freshman uh, but i I was thinking exactly that as you were talking before, the danger of all or nothing thinking is exactly not compartmentalizing you know I failed this test so I'm stupid so I will never be able to do anything as opposed to you know I didn't study enough so I failed this test so okay, I'll study right. harder next time it it has no bearing on everything else that's that's really fascinating
1: and that's why the through line that makes sense to me really does come from my early psychological work because this idea was something we were working on then. So it really has been a, a great through line for me and in my own thinking. And then I would say the fifth is that all resilient entities or people or individuals, cities, companies, are adaptive. They're nimble and they're flexible. So they have the capacity to adjust to, to changing circumstances. They develop new plans, take new actions, modify their past behaviors. And again, the metaphor is that the entity is flexible. It bends rather than breaks. And this adaptiveness and flexibility, in some ways, it's e- almost easier to think about that as individuals but mm-hmm. it's equally true for the natural and built infrastructure. So as New York is rebuilding um, the pilings in lower Manhattan, it is using materials now. Rather than concrete that bend with the wave action, ah, so real flexibility that will make it bend rather than break if the waves become stronger and, and hit harder and harder or higher and higher, and so we have both building materials and also life materials that should allow us to do that with greater intent.
0: oh, I love that I when. I was talking to a friend recently about resilience, and she said that she always thinks of the blade of grass that it seems so fragile but bends when the wind comes, uh, and so doesn't break. And of course, you think about palm trees uh, that grow in an environment where they expect hurricanes, and they can both—they bend, and you know their leaves are such that they are—they're able to have the the wind go through them rather than again putting up a rigid surface. That's
1: exactly right. You know, and in the developing world, as uh, we're looking at natural infrastructure interventions on coastlines where they don't have gazillions of dollars to build levees and dikes, uh, it often is the right kind of vegetation, both palm trees, mangrove trees that absorb water very effectively and bend rather than breaking and all of these elements of the natural infrastructure that can be built or rebuilt to be protective uh, because they are more flexible and more
0: adaptive. It also gives us a great opportunity to develop new materials that will probably be better for us in all sorts of ways when you think about uh, that, that opportunity. Yeah,
1: Maria, I, I would just say, you know, I think that one of the things uh, that we did at Rockefeller about which I am most proud is create the initiative called 100 Resilient Cities. And what's really interesting about the efforts is that not only did we work with the cities, develop a chief resilience officer and develop a a real strategic plan with goals for the resilience projects, but our goal was also to build a marketplace of new resilience goods and services by the private sector so that these new ideas could be infused in real products or real services that would also make us more resilient. And by the time this initiative was completed this year, there were over 90 companies Offering or having developed resilience goods and services, so we think that's part of what the world needs, and um, we're seeing the marketplace respond to that.
0: Well, you anticipated my next question because I was going to ask you about resilient cities, and and really, you developed the con the concept of a chief resilience officer, uh, and and supported chief resilience officers. I assume to not to silo resilience to the chief resilience officer's office, but rather to spur resilient thinking again to the, the awareness, the preparedness, all the different attributes that you've just described uh, throughout the government.
1: Exactly. The goal of the chief resilience officer who reported either to the city manager or the mayor, that was one of our requirements in doing the funding was first to break down the silos in government and second to break down the silos between government the private sector community groups NGOs so that the city really could build an integrated strategy and that was this person's role and they were marvelous the second was Uh, We had a hundred of them on six continents, and so they shared all their learning, then best practices. So rather, and then we opened it up to others, so that rather than everybody, every city, every government having to learn this de novo, they were really able to show and, and share. What they learned that worked and, and where they were having problems and what didn't work. And it was interesting to watch them also form subgroups. So there were those formed a subgroup around water. Um, either too much or too little, as they said, and all of the strategies uh, that they used. There were those who formed a subgroup around earthquakes. And so suddenly Christchurch New Zealand was talking to San Francisco and tremendous amount of learning went on there that is still going on and, and really did build enormous capacity much more quickly than if any of them was going alone.
0: I just think the whole idea of being able to be a Chief Resilience Officer is one of those new job categories, and it obviously doesn't have to be that specific title, but thinking about building resilience as a career path is something the world needs, but I also think many, many people would be interested in. And obviously, if you're an environmentalist, you would think about it, but so too, if you're an engineer.
1: Absolutely. And we're seeing now master's programs developing. So Penn has one, and Columbia has one, Harvard has one, uh, I'm not sure, but there may be many others. Tulane, I know, has one where they are giving master's in resilience. And and the program involves planning, design, but also engineering, some architecture, and a lot of economics. So um, these are not only new job categories, but they're yet again new ways to integrate cross disciplinary knowledge and spark new ways of acting through those cross disciplinary findings
0: well it's it's uh, again, it's an area I think if I were an undergraduate today, I would be truly interested in again for personally and and from a career point of view. I want to ask you about the the biggest stressors you see facing us nationally and indeed globally. But before I do, your book is not called Resilience. It's called The Resilience Dividend. So I do want to ask you about this idea of a dividend from resilience.
1: The reason that I was most excited to write the book was that I wanted to be able to demonstrate from all of the work that we had seen, some of it we funded and some of it developed on its own, that showed that investing in resilience pays dividends both in the good times and in the bad times Uh and so we used to say at Rockefeller if a dollar in is only a dollar out in outcome shame on us right And that was the narrative that we wanted planners and investors, whether it was government funding or private sector funding, to adopt as well, that you need to get more bang for the buck. And one of the things that was so interesting, I testified on the Hill a number of times, and this narrative connected right across political parties and political attitudes. First of all, devastating events had happened in Republican as well as Democratic districts across the country. And secondly, as mayors always say, there's no Republican or Democratic way to collect the garbage. So (laughs) it really has, it's a broad embrace that I think has made it more effective as well. And let me give you a couple of examples of where we've already seen the resilience dividend in place and what thinking really led to it. And I'll give quick ones. No, please do. In the recovery after New Orleans, obviously there was a lot going on. But one of the things that happened is that they received 3 billion dollars to build new green and gray water management huh. infrastructure. Now that's great, but to get the resilience dividend, they also targeted job training For new jobs that this funding was created to bring down the high unemployment rates among their male African-American population, which was about 56% right the time they started this. So they said, let's get more bang for the buck. We don't only want to think of this then as an infrastructure project. We want to think of it as a training project, as an employment solution to some of the social and economic inequity, which is also part of our problem. The resilience dividend Ugh. in Hoboken. The city is very vulnerable to flooding uh, given its uh, topography. And it was also struggling with both a lack of parking space and a lack of green space in the central area of the city. So they developed a single solution that solved all three. They used a Dutch design, which we helped them to understand because Rotterdam was one of our cities. Right. And so they've been building underground parking garages, which are engineered to serve as floodwater catchment facilities when they have flooding, but they put them underground so that they could have new surface green space for recreation.
0: So three wins with one investment. So we really—it's—it's it's an invitation not to do something you kind of have to do because you're imagining a crisis, but it's an opportunity.
1: Well, it's an opportunity, and this is why integration across silos in city government is so important. What you see is that the head of transportation has his or her transportation projects. The head of energy has projects, etc, etc. And they never think about because they're not in this mindset, or at least now they are, but they haven't been in the mindset to think about how they could develop a project that would solve all three at once. And get three wins for one investment. So Boulder, Colorado had a flooding problem and they brought together those three um, units of city government and their solution was a riverbank flooding solution that also built bike paths and green space as part of the infrastructure to that solution. So there wasn't some park far away that they spent the recreation money on. And that just freed resources for different other things at another time. So we keep saying over and over again, look for the resilience dividend, both $3 for every $1 invested, or more actually, because um, FEMA shows that You save $6 in damages for every $1 invested now when it's uh, hurricanes or floods, so that you're getting more bang for the buck. But also, you're doing something that pays off in the good times. Hmm. Not every crisis will happen. And so you want to be prepared for the bad stuff, but you want to benefit when you're in good times as well. And that's what makes this investment so great. You know, there, we didn't even think about other resilience dividends when we were doing some of this work. But I remember one day, uh, Norfolk was one of our early
0: cities, Norfolk, Virginia. Which is having real flooding.
1: Yeah, flooding. And yeah. We we're working on amazingly interesting flooding solutions with the U.S. Navy now integrating their strategies, which they hadn't done before. The national government was thinking one way. The Army Corps of Engineers had a different project, and then the city And so one thing was to integrate all of them. Um, But one of my colleagues came running into my office and said, Norfolk just called and Moody's um, either, and I can't remember whether they kept or, or improved, their municipal bond rating. Uh-huh. And in the report, they said it was because they were working with the Rockefeller Foundation on their resilience strategies, which went
0: way beyond flooding. But to Moody's, it made them a very good bond risk. That's great. That's a real dividend right there, a bond dividend. I love that. Well, so I i, I don't want to end on a uh, kind of negative note, but I do want to ask you about the challenges you see. I mean, resilience in the sense of preparing for disasters and having the right systems, integrated systems and and modular ones or self-regulating ones uh, and being adaptable is important at any time. But in the book, you say, look, in this century, we're really facing huge stressors. uh, And you talk about climate, and you talk about urbanization and globalization. So I'd love it if you would just talk a little bit about each of those and how you see those particular challenges for why we need resilience right now.
1: Absolutely. I do think, and, and this is just reality, crisis is the new normal. There isn't a week that goes by that we don't see in some part of the world. Something really bad happening. Right. And right. so how we prepare is going to be increasingly critical to our long-term success as individuals, as cities, as countries. And you need to prepare by building resilient capacity because you can't predict every bad thing. So this is a, a, a beginning, I I will talk about those three, but I also want to emphasize that you can't build resilience only by looking in the rear view mirror at the last crisis that happened. And this was so clear to us in our Sandy commission, because when we looked at some of the businesses that were, or entities, hospitals as well, that were the hardest hit during Sandy, many of them had put their backup generators in the basement. Because 9-11 uh, happened. Yeah. And so yeah. they didn't want the backup generators on the top floor. So they put them in the basement. And of course, they flooded and they failed. Right. And so there is a risk. You can't predict everyone. So here, I would put my backup generators in the middle. Right. <laughs> in right. the metaphor of, of not just being influenced by what happened before. However, it is very, very clear that climate change is totally escalating the risk. If you just look at the cost of climate-induced disasters, it is estimated that the cost since 1980 of just the US government responding to climate related disasters is up 500%. Jeez,
0: that's a so huge number.
1: It's extraordinary. The UN estimates that just adapting to the climate change that's already occurred, is likely to cost $500 billion yearly mm. by 2050 if we don't put in the right mitigation strategies. New York expects sea level rise of about 11 to 20 inches Jeez. by 2050. Yeah, And so... All of the climate-related stressors and shocks, and this is just the ones we know about, the challenge to our food supply, the challenge to our water supply is growing, both in obvious and non-obvious ways. Scientists working on resilience are showing that the loss of pollinators, um, which is a climate-induced loss, is affecting tremendously the way the ecosystem is developing new flora and it will have profound effects both on our human health and certainly on our food supply. Right, A quarter of humanity faces looming water crises um, from India to Iran to South Africa. We have arid countries already, but Many of these countries have big, thirsty cities, and they've faced acute water shortages already. We've seen it in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and Chennai, India, and certainly in Cape Town that almost reached what they call day zero, which would have been the day when all its dams were dry. Now, the reason that I talk about those three in particular, because it's happening in so many other places, is that these are also cities that have had massive flooding right and too so, much water
0: and not enough at
1: the same time yeah thing. and and we need to think about that and that's thinking about resilience in that context is really really important if we think about urbanization it's estimated by un habitat that about 40% i would say of the built infrastructure that will be present globally in 2050 has not yet been built Wow, And huh. so we have an amazing opportunity, and a lot of that is in uh, South and Southeast Asia, where right. organization will be most massive, and some parts of Africa. And so we have an opportunity now using these resilience principles to really influence how that infrastructure is built, and it can be built resiliently. <laughs> Or non resiliently. So we worked, we at Rockefeller worked with the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank and created a resilience screen for them to use when they were deciding on what infrastructure investments to make. And importantly, It was resilience around the physical and built infrastructure, but we also added in that screen economic and social resilience with the kind of resilience dividend framework in mind. So we think we can influence the future course of urbanization towards more resilience, towards greater success. How transit systems are built, for example, um, are going to be extremely critical going forward. And there are resilient and non-resilient ways to do it. And I talk in the book about Medellin in Colombia, and it's a compelling example because... They built gondolas and escalators up to the hills where the most disadvantaged communities were living. And they were very disconnected from the economic and social core of the city. And so they were much more vulnerable to gangs. Medellin had, at the time, a 90% crime
0: rate. Yeah, it was the and drug capital of the world totally for a long time. The drug and murder capital yes, of the world. Exactly.
1: And by linking these people through transit systems and at each transit stop, they creatively put little clinics and childcare centers. And so again, thinking about the resilience dividend while they were doing this construction. Hmm. So they built a transit system that moves people effectively. They connected social and economic goals together and really raised capacity. And they drove down their crime rate. And so, boy, what a resilience dividend when you think about how to build further um, urbanization. And then globalization. <laughs> For me, sort of case number one is 2008. I think our global financial system was extremely brittle. It was not at all resilient. It was way too interconnected. There wasn't sufficient modularity, all the things that we talked about earlier. And I do worry that as we regulate and rebuild that system, we intentionally try not to rebuild the brittleness into it. And and the new global architecture. And there are a lot of very smart economists now working on this and thinking about it, way smarter than I am in this area, but who have been really stimulated by the resilience metaphor as a new way of thinking about global systems.
0: Because it is a very interesting challenge if you think about your self-regulating point that on the one hand, a global economy has to be interconnected. On the other hand, you do need to be able to shut off parts. Uh, And indeed, there were countries that could, like the Canadian banks uh, simply were not indebted uh, and tied into the housing crisis in the way the American and European banks were. And so Canada actually came out quite well. But even at the level of individual countries, at the level of individual firms, it's that balance between being connected and, again, having some kind of switch where contagion does not take everybody down. It's a a real challenge when you think about how globalized systems work. Exactly, exactly. But it's a challenge that needs to be
1: taken on and confronted uh, because it will have critical consequences for what our future looks like.
0: Well, Judith Roden, you have given us a more than a primer, a wonderful tour of how to think about resilience to how to break it down into its component parts. and above all, and i I, I want to end on this note that resilience isn't some kind of inborn property. It is a set of practices that can be learned and acquired and practiced. uh, And that is a very optimistic message. So I thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit our online magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to access my other interviews.